Welcome to The Lightest Tread, the official podcast of Soul, where we speak to extraordinary and ordinary people who do ordinary and extraordinary things that are good for their bodies, good for the planet, and typify the soul of adventure. I'm your host, Paul Morn Brown, and my guest today is Eric Larson. Eric's mission in life is to spend as many nights in a tent as possible, even if that tent is the only thing protecting him from the freezing, terrifying reality of an Arctic blizzard. Eric is a photographer, filmmaker, guide, and climate change awareness advocate, but most of all, he's a polar adventurer. He's as familiar with the Earth's most extreme environments as anyone could hope or hope not to be. Eric has conducted multiple expeditions to both the South and North Pole, and in 2010, he became the first person to summit Everest and ski to both the South and North Poles in a single year. As you'll hear, Eric wears multiple different sole footbeds to care for his feet on all of his adventures. You can get 15% off sole footbeds at yoursoul.com by using the code THINKSNOW at checkout. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to subscribe to The Lightest Trade wherever you get your podcast. Listen up, folks. It's time for The Lightest Trade. All right, here we go. Rolling with Eric Larson. Eric, thanks very much for joining me. Appreciate it course thanks for having me I, I appreciate it as well yeah cool appreciation all around yeah, that's right it's a big appreciation circle so maybe we should start off with um a, a bit of a summary of uh, your your achievements just to give people a, a sense of a, a perspective on um on the things you've actually got under your belt yeah well i'm alive i feel like that's a pretty big achievement um, overall. Um, but I think on the expedition side of things, um, you know, I don't necessarily, and this is going to sound like a cheesy answer, but it's not, I don't necessarily look at the things I've done, but more just the, the things I've tried, you know? And so I've tried a lot of things mm -hmm. and not all of them have, um, come to a successful for fruition, but I'm, pretty proud of kind of all those things. And I think for me, um, you know, even just kind of how I started out getting in, in, um, kind of more winter expeditions as a dog musher and then, um, kind of doing a lot of expeditions around that and then going to the North pole in the summertime, a way long time ago in 2006, which was a pretty awesome adventure just because nobody had done it at the time. And so we spent three years uh, preparing and planning, fundraising, developing gear. Um, I did a pretty awesome trip to the South Pole, North Pole, on top of Everest all in a year, um, which to me was, was cool because it was unique in terms of putting all those things together. I've done a few expeditions to the South Pole. I tried to bicycle to the South Pole, which was a really bad idea. Um, I've tried to do like a, a FKT to the South Pole, which is a good idea, but bad timing for me. What's an FKT? Sorry. Uh, fastest known time. So it's kind of if you look at it, adventure right now and, and kind of pushing the leading edge of adventure, um, you know, at, there's people have been everywhere. And so we're not really discovering mm. new territory. But we're, what we're doing is we're kind of pushing our own limits. And whether that is something like my three poles trip where you're putting three really difficult expeditions together in a certain time frame 
or, you know, like, for example, in climbing, if you look at like Alex Honnold, he's pushing the limits in terms of what he's doing as a free soloist. You know, people have done those climbs previously, but he's doing them in a harder way. And then FKTs is kind of a similar way to look at that. It's how can I do this traditional route that we kind of know the, the, the starting point and the finish point. It's not a marathon. Um and there's no real overall governing body, although there kind of is, and just how can you do that faster? And so looking at some of these traditional adventures and whether that's hiking the Appalachian Trail or skiing the South Pole or everything in between, it's it's kind of trying to push that personal limit in that kind of known territory. So it's still kind of creating um, a, a unique challenge. Um so, you know, I've, I spent a, I, my, my wheelhouse is long, freezing, cold, boring supper fests. So that's kind of what I spend my time doing. Um, and, uh, but I'm also interested in a lot of other ventures. I do a lot of bike packing trips. I do a lot of multi-sport adventures. I've been um, kind of doing these like state-a-thons where I pick a state and I go from one border to the to the opposite border with three sports in some sort of continuous way, like hiking, biking, pack rafting. And it's a cool way for me to, to um, again, put those kind of arbitrary parameters on an adventure, but also go to places that I've never been before, um, challenge myself in a unique way. I really like maps and routes. And so trying to find a route through all this, it's also a way for me to be original and, and kind of, do things that haven't been done and and you know like hiking biking and pack rafting across colorado isn't any sort of world record and and i don't care if it is but it's an original thing and so because it's new it requires a little more thoughtfulness a little more planning you know the logistics involved and so i really enjoy that part of the expedition or adventure excuse me world as well so Hmm. I'm just interested in being outside in whatever capacity I I can be. I mean, I kind of call myself a professional camper. That's really my ultimate goal is to spend as many nights as I can in the tent. And some of them are are more relaxed and pleasant than others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love. Yeah, totally. Some of them are are less than ideal. Yeah. So one of the things that's that struck me about. Um, I watched Melting Last Race to the Pole, um, which is the film that, that you made uh, in partnership with your partner, Ryan, yeah. uh, on your unassisted ski to the North Pole um, yeah. in 2015, was it? 2014, a long time ago now. 2014. Yeah. You know, you describe it as long, boring, sufferfests. And there's so much about it that's so just completely far out of this world, although it's completely part of this world. Yeah, you know, it's so it's so external to the normal human experience of, of living on Earth. Uh, and there's so many different things that I could point to, but I think one of the things talking about being a professional camper was when you're stuck in that storm. There's a polar storm that comes through and you're in that tent and it's getting buffeted by the wind and you sort of say it's just these two thin pieces of nylon between you and <laughs> and you know almost certain death I guess um and I just I don't know what 
I can't imagine having the mental fortitude to be able to resist a complete collapse into anxiety, anxiety and, you know, how, how much of, of those trips is, how much is mental and, and how much is physical? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. It's a hard one to describe. I mean, just to take a step back, you talk about the mental fortitude and, you know, there's a couple things. One, the best way to be successful is not have another choice. So, you know, I, I tend to put myself in situations where I kind of have to keep moving. Like I, I always say I'm the weakest link in everything that I do. And so whether it's surrounding myself with strong teammates or people that know more, whether it's, you know, kind of being out in this position where we don't have the ability to get picked up. So you kind of have to pick yourself up and get going or endure or whatever it is. Um, that's a big part of it. But then the other part of it, it's not like we're, we're going from zero to a thousand. We're doing a lot of other stuff prior to that. And so, you know, I'm not just like one day waking up and I'm like, oh, I'm going to go ski to the North Pole. Like I spent 20 some years doing a lot of little winter camping trips, doing dog sled expeditions, doing bigger training trips, going up to the Arctic and training for shorter periods of time. And so it's hard and, but it's, but it's, you know, a smaller degree of difficult from what you've already experienced previously. And so the physical and philosophical, you know, balance is kind of like a teeter totter at any given time, you know, like, there's times when physically it's overwhelming. I mean, on that particular trip, we're trying to move 325 pound sleds up and over all these big ice block pressure ridges. And, you know, it's physically very challenging and at times we just couldn't do it. So we had to take out half of our gear and bring the sled over and empty out the gear and then bring the sled back, you know? And so it's just kind of finding that solution. And so in those points, it's physically harder, um, you know, and again, just referencing that tent scene is there's a philosophical aspect of that which is you know we're sitting in that tent and we only have a finite amount of time to be able to get to, to the pole on that particular trip because of the logistics window and we're also putting a lot of money into it you know we had to borrow money from ryan's brother to pay for the logistics i mean those polar trips are prohibitively expensive i'm not a millionaire i wish i was but mm -hmm. you know just getting dropped off on the edge of the arctic ocean is almost 50 grand um mm. and and so like we're sitting in that tent and we're safe for the moment but philosophically we have all these other pressures of you know the financial aspect of this trip the amount of food and fuel that we're using um just the overall amount of time that we're out there which is mind-numbingly long compared to like the pace of our lives and you know, the financial burdens and then the potential of not being successful. And if you look at, you know, these types of things, like our society celebrates, you know, we know Michael Phelps who won all the gold medals, but do we know the second place guy? No. Um, and so it's, there's a lot of that pressure that kind of happens all the time. And, and even later on in that trip where, you know, we were running out of fuel and, you know, it's what do we do? Do we push past that reasonable amount of safety um, and take this huge, potentially life altering risk? Or do we, you know, pull back a little bit and be like, you know what, I'm not comfortable with that. And um, it, it's different all the time. But it, but it, it's a like I said, it's a balance. 
I, I wish I could give a succinct answer on it, but it's, it's fairly nuanced and, um, you know, it changes over time with experience, with just kind of my personal life. You know, I'm a dad, like I'm not as comfortable with those types of risks as much anymore. Um, kind of, you know, and, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I think the, the both aspects are, are kind of at play at any given moment and they're, both something that need to be managed in pretty thoughtful and meaningful ways to be able to just kind of keep going forward. It's interesting to me that you mentioned Alex Arnold and free soloing in particular, because it was a, a thought that I had in relation to what you do and um, the duration of time that you're out there for. I think what you do that specifically polar expeditions, must be one of the hardest things for people to wrap their heads around the challenges that are involved. You know, if you watch Alex Arnold climb in free solo and, you know, we all understand gravity to the same yeah. extent. We all get yeah. it. You know, you, yeah. everybody can sit there and get sweaty palms because you know what's going to happen. Yeah. You, you, you know, he makes one small mistake and, and that's it. It's a, it's a, a, a long way down and there's, it's a death, a certain death. Um, it struck me that for you, you, it's a similar situation in a way, but it's just on a different scale. So you have a small mistake, you know, you can stumble, trip over, get back up, go, you know, the small mistake isn't going to make the hugest difference, but you have not just a day or two days or you know, 12 hours, however long Alex Arnold takes to, to climb a serious pitch, you have 55 days of the small, small mistake might not be life threatening, but a medium sized mistake really could be life threatening. And it's 55 days long. Yeah, it's that's a that's a very astute, that's a very astute observation, actually, because I find myself explaining that, you know, like, you know, Alex Honnold or a base jumper, like a base jumper, they step off that cliff and in a split second, they're in that moment of whatever they've done and whatever they're doing has a direct impact on their survival. And, and for us, our trips are a little more like death by 1000 cuts. It's, it's more like a, a chess game where you have to make each move that you are doing each day you have to be very deliberate and, you know, the small mistakes actually can have big impacts, but maybe not that day. Maybe it's, you know, two weeks down the road, you know, how you're wearing your clothes. Like, you know, if you even just having the wrong side, like one day the temperature warmed up and I put on a lighter pair of socks and then I got this huge blister on my bottom of my foot, small little thing, but I couldn't ski properly. And when you're trying to make miles, you know, for 12 hours or 15 hours, and you're stepping on that, that becomes a bigger problem. And those little things can be kind of very accumulative. And so, and so the, the reason that I like this kind of travel, and it suits maybe more my personality, is that very kind of careful, slow moving, um, you know, you kind of have to be on top of everything at all the time. And, and yeah, you, you can have a small little mistake, but that can have a big impact farther down the road and it's the, the benefit is you know at 53 or 54 days that's when you kind of get that 
jumping over the cliff. Okay, did all those decisions that I made every single one of those minutes pay off so that I can be in this position now? And so you're just kind of elongating that in a much different way. And like I said, I think that just suits my personality. I don't think one is better or worse or they're just different. Um, but I think to me, that's the kind of unique challenge of this longer expedition travel. And then it's also a gift because you're able to be out in that environment for so long. I mean, if you think about our lives now, we're zipping here, we're zipping there, we're doing, I mean, and I, even I am like, I just go camping for like two, like we'll leave at like five o'clock after school, go camp for the night, come back by like lunchtime, you know, and it's fun to be out. But it's a different experience mm. that the longer you're out, the more you understand that place, the more you, se- you understand yourself in that place. And so it becomes this, you know, I don't want to say like a Zen experience, but it becomes a much more all-encompassing experience and also a very um, counter and not in a negative way, but just very different from what our society is right now. And so I think that's a really unique perspective. And and you know the upshot is being in wilderness that long and and there's just a lot of really i think valuable lessons that you can learn and you know apply to all sorts of situations and you don't have to be like a genius or whatever you're just out there and the thoughts come in your mind and you're like oh this this is why this happens and and that direct nature if i do this this happens where in our normal lives we have all these other layers that are kind of separating us from from those kind of at times severe consequences or even mild consequences. I also love the, um, uh, you described it as day 40 syndrome or day, you know, you get into a specific frame of mind at a certain point, you, yeah. you'd said it during the duration of, of, um, of the previous 40 days that you have doubts, you questioning what am I doing here? It's a grueling undertaking, you're missing your family, you're feeling a certain amount of guilt um, about having put yourself in the situation, perhaps you, you, it's really a a mental, uh, you're not, you have to be present throughout everything that you're doing. But to an extent, there's a part of you that's not quite there. There's a part of you that's sort of thinking back to to home and and questioning and then you hit a certain point where you almost transcend that and you just go into survival mode and it's day 40 you yeah. say yeah and um i i wonder if that's a a specific type of um transcendence that is it that feeling that you that you almost i mean you speak about the satisfaction of day 55 and all of the choices that i made came came out and i made it through the the struggle and it feels really good to have achieved the thing you set out to achieve is there something about getting to day 40 and having 15 days of just living in the most basic fundamental human state that few people live in or choose to live in or, or put themselves in. Is there something about that that, you know, makes you feel alive for, for yeah. all of a, yeah, a less obvious an, term? That's, that's an interesting question. Um, nobody's ever asked me that before. 
I wouldn't say that it's a it's a feeling of being like alive or more present. What it is is almost a narrowing of a focus to the fundamental things that allow you to survive. And um, mm. and so I've always said I think just people in general have the ability to survive whatever, and it's just being in that position. And like I said earlier, really not having another choice. And so I think what happens prior on these bigger trips is, you know, you have a lot of other responsibilities as a partner and, and, you know, a father for the last, you know, nine years. Um, it's also about kind of having a relationship and, you know, it's a lot easier. I've done trips with, without, and it's a lot easier at times because you're not doing something else. Um, and so like on any given day, I'm, you know, I'm updating my website, I'm sending pictures, I'm organizing the logistics, I'm communicating with the base camp. There's a lot of other things besides just skiing and eating that are happening as well as just trying to be a partner and a dad, you know, like as best as I can. I mean, it's just hard being gone. And so those things occupy a lot of energy, physical and philosophical energy that are taken away from your prime directive. And at a certain point, it's just like, and you, and I want to be connected to my family. Like I don't want to not talk to them for two months straight or whatever, you know? And so mm. it's a choice, mm. but at a certain point, it's survival and you know talking to my family doesn't really help with my survival like it it detracts from the survival like they're sucking energy from me and that's not anything on them it's just how it is even like doing updates or whatever and so it's just kind of narrowing down like yourself to the fundamental aspects of what you need to exist and move forward because your physical ability is precipitously dropping exponentially and the difficulty of the trip is going up. And so you're at this kind of crossroads where you just can't go back and forth in any sort of real way. And, and in one sense, that is a little bit of a transcendence because, you know, like you're in a life-threatening situation and you might die and it's just, it's just a calmness too which helps with that singular focus. Mm. And so I know I have my family there. I'm not going to think about them. They exist in some other reality, but it's not this reality, which I just need to get my legs to move and I'm running out of food. And when there's no calories, the legs don't move. And so how can I get my legs to move? And, you know, so it's, mm. it's, it's kind of, um, I think it, it, that's kind of how it all kind of shakes out in the end. And part of that is awesome because it just allows you to get through really hard things. And I would imagine that, you, you know, if you were to look at the psychology of it, there's probably a whole branch of study of prisoners or, you know, soldiers that have been in these kind of hard situations where maybe some similar mind mindset evolves, I would assume. It, it's, you know, you mentioned the, the soldier thing and, um, I have I've sort of heard recently um, the relatively common and surprising phenomenon of soldiers coming back from conflict areas and missing being there, missing to an extent 
that uh, sense of camaraderie with their companions um, in the face of, of extreme danger and exactly in sort of a life and death situation. Yeah, and you also just have a very, yeah, you have a very single focus purpose. And so that's a very kind of fulfilling thing as much as you might not think it, but when you, you, it's so simple, you know, like I wake up, I do this, I do this. It's hard. I overcome these challenging. I get a little like boost from getting through these difficult things. It's scary. And then I get through it and then I'm psyched, but it's just this, you know, so you're, you're living such a direct life. And as I said a bit earlier, like your actions have immediate consequences. And so you're accountable you know, to your team, but also like you see that on yourself immediately. And so you can just, you know, if I do this, then I get, you know, if I move this way, then I improve just a little bit. And there's the benefit of that action. And, and so I, I feel the same way when I, when I come back from expeditions, you're just kind of a little down and depressed because now you're just sitting in a chair, everything's easy, mm. you know, like, there's all these other kind of aspects mm. to civilization that now you have to deal with that you didn't have to deal with. Previously. Yeah. Everything's easy in one way and sort of complicated and confusing and distracting and jumbled yeah. in, in another. Yeah. yeah. Um, sitting in cars always gets me. I'm like, I'm mm. sitting in the car right now. This is awesome. <laughs> um, so one of the things you said there was uh, you don't have to be a genius to sort of see um, you know, you spend so much time out there and you, you sort of begin to understand cause and effects and the environments around you. Um, and one element of that is, well, I guess it's, it's a theme that's come up a few times in conversations that I've had with people on, on the podcast recently is understanding yourself as a part of nature rather than as something separate from nature. Um, and in that instance, you're such a foreigner to to that environment. You're so completely out of your your comfort zone. And the thing that uh, brings that to the fore most clearly, I think, is the instance of the polar bears stalking you. And it reminded me of a I'm South African, as you may or may not have guessed. Um, I grew up in the water, in the, in the ocean all the time, completely felt completely at home in the sea. Uh, but no matter how at home you feel in the ocean, we're not, we're not designed to, to be aquatic creatures. Right. And the thing that brought that home to me the most was going on a shark cage diving trip for work once, right? So that you go out in these boats into this bay close to Cape Town. And the whole experience is a bit weird. They sort of chum the waters with fish heads on a rope and bring in these huge great white sharks, um, which are just enormous apex predators of the ocean and ancient, you know, evolved over thousands and thousands and thousands of years to be just incredibly adept killers, uh, super intelligent animals. And then you're in the water in this cage and the water's kind of murky and you feel at home in the water because you swim a lot. And then 
out of the murky water looms this predator and it's suddenly there and then suddenly gone. And in that instance, you realize I am nothing in the water. I don't stand a chance. This is not, I've always felt at home here, but actually I'm so completely out of my element that I don't stand a chance here. This is not where I'm supposed to be. And I mean, unless you have a weapon. And so all of this is, is just relating in some strange way to the, the polar bear stalking you. And unless you have a shotgun, you're in, yeah. you're in trouble and it gives you a sense of perspective of, yeah. of your place within that environment, I guess. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I feel the same way. I've long thought about polar bears and traveling across the sea ice and they're just wandering around out there. I mean, they just stop and sleep on the snow, mm. excuse me, the snow. They swim across these open water leads that take us, you know, 45 minutes to get across. I mean, they're so perfectly adapted to that environment. Um, that like at times I'm like, oh man, wouldn't it be great to be a polar bear? Cause it'd be just so easy up here. But then yes, you realize you're not the top of the food chain. And, and I think in a lot of ways, not only that, but also just the vastness of that place, it's kind of a good realization and it's a good feeling to understand your kind of insignificance, I think in the grand scheme of things. And I, you know, I think that can be hard for people to understand because we all want to feel important and, and, and all these other things. But I think understanding that, you know, my time here is so minimal. My place is insignificant. My ability to, to be out here is fairly limited. I mean, for all intents and purposes, we might be, might as well be on Mars. I mean, we can't be out without our whole bodies covered. Um, but it also gives you an opportunity to kind of understand the environment more. I mean, you talk you talked about that a little bit and kind of understanding the environment. And that's where I kind of advocate this idea of thoughtfulness, where it's, you know, it's not man against nature, it's people with nature. And so you're trying to understand what the environment is like. It's kind of ranges so to speak like what is it like on a good day what is it like on a bad day what you know what's the humidity blah 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 all these things and then you're just trying to understand yourself and what you need to be able to be comfortable in that environment and and especially for these long polar trips where we're in such a narrow margin of kind of comfort or safety it's just kind of constantly observing feeling, understanding what the changes are happening, and then reacting yourself to those changes, not in some sort of crazy kind of frenetic way where it's like, the wind's blowing here, now I need to do this, but it's just kind of this thoughtful, you know, taking in this data, okay, I'm getting a little colder, I'm going to just see if I can warm up by doing this, okay, the wind's picking up, all right, maybe I'm going to stop and get another layer on, and then keep going, you know, and so by doing that, you kind of are able to to kind of understand a little bit more of the nuance of that area and and like i said you're more traveling with it it's it's not dominion over that place but you're just trying to understand it as best as you can so that you can be as safe as possible and whether that's polar bears whether that's the temperature whether that's you know in the case of the arctic ocean the sea ice the open water whatever it is you're you're kind of a big data collector you know and um, and trying to adapt in a slow, 
kind of meaningful way as best as you can. So speaking of being a data collector, uh, a lot of what you do is partly in order to raise awareness and, and act almost as a data collector. You are relatively uniquely placed as someone who's seen and experienced the effects of global warming in those very particularly extreme environments. Um, and I'd love it if you could speak to that a, a little bit. Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, there's there are a lot of kind of native cultures, Inuit, um, that, that live in the Arctic Circle in North America that have been kind of sounding that alarm for quite, for, you know, decades, basically. Um, mm. And so, you know, there there's kind of a, um, a level of, it's called traditional ecological knowledge that they have, you know, here's when the migration of the eider ducks come, here's usually when we see the first meltwater pools in the sea ice and and, and those people have noticed those changes for, for quite some time now, way ahead of any of my effort. But I will say, like, going back a little bit, like, my background is in environmental education, and that's what I studied in school. And I was an environmental ed teacher for many years. And, and for me, I got into expeditions, not because I thought I was the most, like, badass person who could do all this stuff and was an athlete i was just someone who was like kind of athletic and i felt like adventure was a good hook to be able to get people interested in these bigger ideas and that's really how i got into kind of the more expedition side of things and so you know the environmental focus has always been my primary directive in life and it's been trying to figure out the best way to connect people to the things that I feel are important. And, you know, obviously in, in kind of loving cold places, climate change has a big impact um, there. And so it's trying to find ways into this conversation and that are, that's going to engage people, that's going to um, connect them, that they're going to be compassionate and, uh, um, and that's, you know, I think that human endeavor is a big part of that, that human story. When, when many people think about, um, you know, the Arctic or, or, or Antarctic, it's just this big blank white nothingness. And so being able to kind of put that human narrative on it adds a little dimension to that place that's so abstract for people. Additionally, back in, in you know, my first North Pole expedition, it was a summer expedition. So we were pulling and paddling these canoes. And we thought just that imagery of like, here's a boat floating in a place that most people think is just frozen. Hopefully that's powerful. Um, that will kind of elicit some sort of change. Um, you know, we also worked on kind of some backdoor climate change legislation and getting polar bears listed as an endangered species and collecting signatures on that front. And so trying to find these different ways, you asked about Think Snow, and that actually came about kind of during the, the housing crisis in the 2008, 9, and 10 when I was trying to fundraise for expeditions and nobody, you know, every company was broke and, and people didn't like, people didn't want to talk about climate change because they were like, I don't have a paycheck. You want me to worry about this, mm. you know, far away ice cap? Like I need to mm. put food on the table for my kids. Mm. And so I, I changed my philosophy to a little more like, 
why don't I just get people excited about cold? Because a lot of people were like, hey, global warming, I don't want to be cold anyway. So why isn't it better for it to be warm? And so I changed my path, adjusted my path a little bit to just kind of do more messaging around like, hey, winter is a vital part of a healthy, healthy ecosystems and a healthy global climate. And so if we can, if I can kind of shift this conversation away from the political at this point and just go on a more like kind of qualitative angle, so to speak. And so I'm, I'm kind of constantly on this path of trying to, to find what's best. You know, part of it was making, you know, our movie going back to the North Pole, even though I'd already done uh, two other trips there, just trying to find ways to get people interested in these things. And so I feel a little bit like Don Quixote, you know, um, you know, charging at windmills, but I keep kind of thinking about this bigger issue and as an individual trying to find like, how can I make my biggest impact? And sometimes it's over here, sometimes it's around here. Um, and so, but just trying to keep these conversations going and these ideas moving forward in the positive direction without, you know, making people feel, um, you know, bad about themselves. I mean, we all use resources to be able to live and survive. There's, there's no question about that. So that's kind of been a, an ongoing process for me. And at times I feel like, yes, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm making a big difference. And other times, like I'm just beating my head against the wall and, my impact is insignificant, if not like negatively affecting the whole thing, you know? So mm. it's, 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 uh, it's, I'm still in the middle of it, but I'm still trying. Sure. And I think, you know, like with anything, I think the effort, it's more about the effort than the outcome. Hmm. Yeah. I appreciate you pointing out the, um, longstanding sort of indigenous, knowledge and experience of things and and uh, voicing of concern and raising of alarm in relation to you know the way that that they you know indigenous indigenous communities have recognized changes over a long period of time i guess there's something about um the way in which well, I guess it's the way that society works in general, but there's something about um, the sort of Western or white American experience, which appreciates uh, adventure and exploration inherently and has this, as the, you know, people like you hold a certain place um, of uh, prestige in in american well in western society in i guess global society um yeah. but so yeah. it's um incorrect in saying that you have unique experience of it but you are you perhaps uniquely placed to speak to it in a way that people will will hear oh, and understand right. and, and appreciate speaking of um indigenous communities uh i'd love to hear more about um your latest initiatives in in helping to get people of color and, and indigenous people prepared uh, for doing similar things that that you have been doing yeah i mean i think like a lot of people in the outdoor industry i think i was going along kind of feeling like i was doing my thing not really hurting anybody mm. um trying to be a good human being and mm. i i think um, I think 
many of us realize like that's maybe not good enough anymore. And there are a lot of people who haven't had the same opportunities, um, you know, and, and that doesn't take away from anybody's effort that they've made to, to achieve their su- success in whatever capacity. But, you know, there, there are people that just because of their color of their skin, haven't had the same opportunities or breaks or whatever it is. And I, you know, like a lot of other people reflected on that and, you know, thought about what, what can I do in my own way? And, you know, looking kind of backwards, actually, historically, there is a, one of my polar heroes, a guy named Matthew Henson was theoretically one of the first people to reach the North Pole in the early 1900s. He was an African-American polar explorer, just a badass dude. He basically carried the white dude on his back. You know, he learned all the Inuit language and was able to kind of communicate with the native um, population in a way that the other team members couldn't. He was an incredible dog driver. He, he was just a really adept, multifaceted traveler and, you know, eventually received some accolades, but but initially really didn't get much recognition for all of his efforts. And so he, he was just kind of point blank, just a big inspiration to me um, in kind of like how he was able to do all the things he did just from, from, from so many different ways. But as, as I move forward in looking at kind of my own kind of abilities or lack of abilities might be a better thought, you know, I wanted to be able to, um, you know, help other people in ways that I may have received help. And so looking towards kind of my very small and narrow skill set, which is polar travel, but I also think it's just kind of winter travel in general and kind of putting together a scholarship in honor of Matthew Henson, this historical African-American polar explorer, to give other people opportunities to basically train, you know, the next generation of polar adventurers and, and polar guides and, and, and bigger expeditioners. And so, you know, at, at, at this initial stage, just kind of putting all the pieces together to remove barriers for other people so they can have this opportunity, but then hopefully in the future be more hands off where, you know, here are these people that have come through the system that are fully capable in their own rights and are able to kind of pass along that knowledge as well. And I, I and and so, you know, like everything, I'm, I'm moving in a direction. I, I, I kind of put all my effort and energy into it. Um, and usually that that works out pretty well. But it, it takes a little elbow grease, you know, to get all get get remove all those barriers, gear, travel expenses, you know, all these other things. But um, you know, to me, it's just something that I'm interested in doing. And, and I, and I love quite honestly, selfishly, I, I really enjoy being able to share my experiences with other people and have people get excited about, um, you know, some of the types of travel and, and, you know, the minutia that I think are important in these situations and being able to then take those and apply them to whatever situation that they're in. And, and, and what they're doing in their lives. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of the goal. And hopefully this, this, uh, January and February, I'll have a group of six or eight people going up and, and, um, 
up to northern Minnesota where I already do a forward train. I have a whole gear shed up there and sleds and tents. And mm-hmm. we spend a few days in a cabin just kind of practicing things. So I, I like to talk about not only the what, but the how and the why. So people understand a lot of the conceptual things behind what we're doing. And, um, and then we go out on the ice and do a mini polar expedition, basically. And it's might as well be Antarctica or Greenland because we get in bad whiteouts. We get blowing, uh, nuking weather, you know, minus 30 wind chills. I mean, you name it. it it's kind of like a, um, a whole polar potpourri of like conditions out there. But it's kind of this great ending where you can, we can take all these things that we've practiced for a few days and really immediately put them into practice. And that's a really empowering thing for people too. And, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to pull all, all that together this year, 2023. Um, and, and we'll see where it goes from there. Awesome. Is it, do you have, a, is there a particular name for that initiative or? Uh, you know, I, it's funny cause I'm uh, naming things I'm generally sometimes good at, but I don't really have a good name. I call I'm kind of calling it the, Polar Training Academy, honoring Matthew Henson too long. Um, but uh, so we'll see. Cool. Hopefully I can shorten it up. If you have any ideas, let me know. Yeah, sure. <laughs> or if anybody else does. Well, we'll, um, we'll be sure. If you, I don't know if you have something we can link to from, uh, from, a, from a description for, this ep- for the episode of this. Totally, yeah. I'll have, it, I'll have it all up on my website probably within the next month. And so once I get all this sorted, I'll have kind of a, a sign up form for people and we'll, we'll do some kind of bigger announcements about just kind of getting awareness of, of the sign up and then figuring out the parameters for, for, um, you know, selecting a few folks as awesome. well. So I'm excited. Yeah, No, yeah. that is exciting. Um, you mentioned gear being one of the uh, barriers we'd love to, and as much as, uh, we can I don't know, keeping obviously foot health is an important thing. I mean, I could go on for about 10 hours about foot care um, because it's such a vital part of our trip, but even just the insoles, I are multifaceted for these type of trips because of course you're on your feet training trips. We're not, you know, we're maybe moving six or eight hours a day, which isn't crazy, but you know, on the longer trips, we're moving for 15 hours a day. Um, you know, you need to have good support in your feet and also your feet change. So I always, while on my gear list, I have two pairs of insoles, a thicker insole, um, and then a thinner insole. And Mm -hmm. so sometimes we end up switching those around. Um, you know, I have higher arches, so that arch support is really important. And then the other thing is it's really a part of like, um, staying warm. I mean, you lose a lot of heat just through conduction, through contact, through the bottom of your boots mm. and, the, and the surface, which is case is snow or ice. And so the insoles just become a really integral part of kind of your whole expedition action suit, so to speak, but, but really your feet, which, you know, if, if your feet aren't working, you're not going anywhere. Mm. And so... Um, like I said, I could go on and on because it's such a vital part of, of the trip and also a, a very easy thing to just kind of, oh, I don't, you know, look over and I'll be fine or I'll just deal with it. And you just can't, can't, mm. you can't do that. And, 
expect to be successful or, or move forward at all. So, hmm. yeah. Awesome. Yeah, it's great to hear that, you know, one of the things we love the most is reading reviews and testimonials from customers coming in to sort of hear about the significant impact that we've made in their lives. It's, it's nice to hear that from, from you, from a slightly different, more extreme. Oh yeah. I, I'm, I'm like an, I'm like an, I'm like an insole evangelist, quite honestly. <laughs> so I'm, I'm I, and, and when I do my guiding, I'm just, I, I go, I have this pretty extensive gear list and, and mm. I, back in the day, I used to just give people a gear list. Okay. They show up and then they would show up with just all sorts of random stuff. And so usually I set up a couple calls, but I'm like, okay, get all your gear together, put mm. it in a big pile and we're going to, we're going to do a video chat and we're going to go through each thing and we're going to talk about it and why it's important. And, and I always catch people on the insoles because I'm like, they're on the list. Why don't you have them? Mm. You know? Um, two pairs. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'd like to speak also about you know you said right at the beginning you're alive, which um, feels like your most significant recent achievement. Um, totally. And yeah, I'd like to, if you don't mind, speak a little bit about your recent experience with your health. Yeah, it's a, it's a little crazy. And I, for a long time, I kind of didn't want anybody to know I was sick. Um, I wasn't embarrassed or ashamed. It was more, I was just, all my energy was focused on just trying to live, basically. So mm. a couple of years ago, two years ago, almost to the day, I broke my collarbone mountain biking in a just fluke little accident. And I never really felt right after that and kind of did a few different tests and food allergy things and just my energy was weird and I was losing weight and ended up the culmination of that about a year and a half ago, right in the beginning of January, I was like set to leave for a training, lead a training course like three days later. Um, I ended up just getting a routine colonoscopy and they're like, oh, by the way, you have cancer and and then go get these scans and then it looks like it's in your lungs and that means you're stage four and you've got like three years three or four years to live and that's that's it you know and so uh and then what it followed was some more tests and biopsies and lung biopsies and they found that the stuff in my lungs wasn't cancer luckily and so that kind of changes your your treatment, but it's still, I was on a pretty brutal regimen with chemo, um, last a, a year ago in this, in the winter, late winter and spring and last, last summer radiation and then surgery in the fall and, and had a really bad infection in surgery and was pretty much like in bed for three or four months in intense pain, mildly addicted to oxycodone and um yeah it was just it was a brutal experience it was very hard it was very um um humbling but also just it, it, it's hard in so many levels like i i it, it was just a crazy experience uh, i'm still kind of in it you know i'm i'm right now ned which is no evidence of disease um i have my energy back i'm i'm biking like a crazy man just because i'm like like I said, happy to be alive. And, you know, I thought a lot about it. I've been in a lot of situations that are potentially 
death inducing mm. and it's different when you're choosing to be in that situation versus when that situation is thrust upon you and you have no control. Um, and yeah, it was hard. Um, and that like hard is like the extreme understatement. And, and I think, you know, for me personally, I had known a lot of people that had cancer and, um, you know, interacted with people, but it, I, I was surprised at how little I knew about the whole process as mm. well as just what that individual goes through as well as their, um, you know, family or their relatives or whatever, and how just kind of all encompassing and, um, overwhelming it is. And, um, and I'm still like got some PTSD mm. just smells trigger me. Even this kind of like talking about it a little bit is can be hard at times. Mm. Um, but I also look at it as like a gift, as crazy as that sounds. Um, yeah, I mean, when you, when, when I was, when the rubber met the road and they were like, you got a few years to live, I thought about my kids. And then I thought about the times where I've helped other people. I didn't think about climbing Mount Everest or going North Pole. That was like, that's silly in, in, in comparison. And so I also realized a little bit about kind of the, the things that everybody's dealing with. You know, everybody's got a, a pain that may seem life-threatening to them in one way or the other. And, um, you know, therefore that role of compassion, I think, for all of us, especially now in, in, in our world today, is so much more important. You know, giving people the benefit of the doubt. Uh, you know, it sounds silly, but you know, if you, if you know, somebody's going through them, just send them a little text. Mm. It takes two mm. seconds, you know, and, but it can, it can change the internal conversation pretty easily to know that somebody's concerned about you. So, um, yeah, it's changed my perspective and I'm still, I kind of like, you know, I, I've been using the whitewater kayaking analogy where you get sucked into a hole and you just get spun around. They call it Maytagged. And you're just in there and you never know if you're going to get out. And then all of a sudden, hopefully you get spit out and you're like, I still got my arms. I'm breathing. Mm. Now what do mm. I do? You know? And so that's kind of the place that I'm at right now. I had my last surgery at the end of March and my energy is coming back. But I, I just kind of just like I always do. I just take a couple little steps and see how it feels and, start doing a little more and, and, and now I'm kind of back into everything. My only fear is I want to move on from this experience, but I don't want to forget all these lessons. Um, because yeah, I, it's just, it was, it, and it still continues to be a very impactful part of my life and in, in a way that I would have never expected. Mm. Yeah, there's there's so many sort of parallels to draw, I guess, you know, which is easy to do as someone who's neither been to the North Pole nor um, survived cancer. Um, but, um, you know, the struggle, I, 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 it might be sort of an 
an obvious idea that might be totally off the mark, but do you think that the life that that you have lived was helped in like a serious practical way to prepare you for the for the struggle of of being sick for a long time? Yeah, there's no question. Yeah, mm. it, there, there's a lot of stuff. You know, like you're there's so many things. It's you're dealing with these overwhelming problems that you have little control over in both situations. Mm. You know, it seems like your effort is minimal. Um, you're dealing with constant uncertainty. Mm. Um, you're not in control of all the elements around you. You have to rely on other people a lot. Um, and you have to deal with kind of loneliness and physical and mental pain, you know? So it, there's a lot of it. And, and I will say like, there, there's a lot of, there were a lot of analogies for me and I found it quite helpful and kind of made me laugh every once again, even though it was hard to laugh of like, Oh yeah, this is, this is like this situation, you know, uh, the mm. part, there was one kind of, little crazy thing which was philosophically really hard one of the chemo drugs i was on oxaliplatin um gives you this really terrible cold sensitivity crazy like um mm. i would have to wear gloves inside i couldn't drink like a cool glass of water um Oof. i remember my after my first chemo treatment i just went in the grocery store and um and just walked in like the vegetable section and just that cool air it's just like pins and like really painful pins and needles mm. in your fingers, on your face. If I were to drink something down my throat, my feet. Um, and, and the doctors had told me about it previously. And I was like, Oh, no problem. I know all about cold sensitivity. I can deal with this. Mm. But it, it was interesting to me because it's a much different, it's a, it's a very much nerve thing and a, a stimulus response. And it's not, from your body core temperature lowering, it's just something, you know, a cold breeze hitting your fingertip. Mm. But, um, but it was interesting because, you know, I don't think I have any sort of real special skills or strengths. Definitely not. But I am able to like be out in the cold and deal with cold in a way that I would say is maybe better than your average bear, so <laughs> to speak. Say. And, um, and it was like cancer, like I lost all my hair. I, you know, was potentially losing my life. I couldn't eat, you know, like all this stuff gets taken away from you and you have no ability. And then it was like, oh, and by the way, this one thing that you thought you were really good mm. at, you can't have that either, you know? Mm. And uh, so that was, that was, that was just among all the other things, just like, oh, I'm just going to kick you when you're down a little bit more. And, and um, it's funny now looking back, I, I like seeing the humor and the irony of it, but at, at the time it was just, uh, yeah, it was just one, one other really crazy difficult thing. So I was going to ask if, um, you know, it's, uh, it seems, it's not surprising that having ha having led the life that you have and been through so many physical drawn out arduous hardships of your own choice that it would pre prepare you um, for fighting cancer in that way um, and make it easier 
or not easier, but yeah, prepare you in some in some way. But I did wonder also if it made there's a lot to do with one's sense of one's own identity, and I think that's exactly uh, what you're sort of pointing out. And I wondered, I did wonder if maybe the experience of cancer was harder in that way, you know, and that cold sensitivity is a very particular instance of it. But if it if it did yeah. sort of mess with your sense of self more than it would for, you know, someone who sits at a desk all day and and doesn't totally. hasn't lived a life of, phys, you know, you're a physically tough, strong, you've faced a hell of a lot and your body's always been there for you to carry carry you through whatever right. nature, yeah. whatever the freaking North Pole threw your way, you could handle it with your body. And so I did wonder if um, if it was harder to deal with that a loss of that because of your history. Yeah, I mean, I think that's another good question. I think in part it was, you know, like had I been an accountant, I could have kept doing a lot of work um, mm -hmm. at, at certain points during kind of my treatment. But, you know, there I just had no ability to do physically anything. I mean, it was just hard to get out of bed. It was... You know, mm. when I was recovering from surgery for so many months, I could barely even sleep, let alone walk across the room. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, it was definitely like a stab at who I was fundamentally as a person. Mm. I also kind of did have the realization. I mean, I was talking with my mom when I was first diagnosed and I was kind of like, well, this sucks, but there's only one direction that we're all going. I mean, we're, we're all dying at some point. And, mm. you know, I have, um, you know, I've, I haven't lived a, a perfect life. I've made a lot of mistakes, messed up more times than I care to count, but I was able to discover my life's passion and um, I was able to have a family and find some peace with who I was as a person. So I always, mm. when I was younger, maybe felt a little uneasy about who I was and what I was about. And, you know, like, did I want to see my kids graduate high school? Definitely. But at a certain point, it, it wasn't my choice. And so I was like, this is what I got, you know, like you can, it's, it's not really going to help to, to wallow in what I don't have. And, you know, that was, that was kind of my mindset going into it. And then the other thing is, you know, I didn't start out the person that I am right now. Like I, learn things along the way and I adapted like I never used to like at some point I don't know 15 years ago I picked up a camera and really started enjoying taking pictures mm. um and that provides me with a lot of satisfaction and and I and I really enjoy it and I just felt like the you know the only constant is change and so I I kind of was kind of had this other thought which is it's not going to be easy, but I'll adapt to whatever I can do. 
you know, mm. and something will come up and maybe it's not the first thing, maybe it's not the second thing, but something will come up. And, and so I kind of just sat around in those places for, for a long time, you know, it's kind of this comfort with my life um, and understanding that, you know, if I were to make it out, maybe I could, and, and, and wasn't physically able in one way or another that I could find, find something that would fulfill me in, in some sort mm. of way. And, and, you know, or maybe it's just being a soccer dad and shoveling kids around, you know, like, I, I didn't really know, but I just kind of had confidence in, in the journey, I mm. guess. There's definitely something, I guess, about having achieved, having done so much that so few people do or get to do and having my best, best friend died of cancer. Funnily enough, almost two years to the day, a week ago, it was two years since my best mate died of cancer. And one of the few ways to take solace was um, a very real sense that he had lived life to its absolutes, uh, to the fullest, you know? Yeah, um, totally. That he had really been an example for the way, like the best way to live life. He got to do, he was a pilot, he lived in Indonesia, um, flying small planes between beautiful islands. Um, you know, and I'm, I know that, that when he got to the end, he was, he would have been, been satisfied with the things he had seen. And I mean, not satisfied, she says, if anyone's ever really completely satisfied, but I guess this is all, um, just, uh, another way to say, yeah, it's, it sounds like sort of a trite and obvious thing, but yeah, live really try to try to live and, and live life in a way that, that makes the most of, makes the most of it. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think it's not necessarily about trying to prove your life is, you know, one life is better than, than the next, but it's more about kind of being true to yourself for sure. Um, you know, being able to follow a path that fulfills you and, and helping when you can, you know, like, so sure. it's, I don't think it's a complicated formula, but it's, it's complicated for people to get it. Mm. Um, and, and I think for me, not to tie this around in a cheesy way, but I do think that's a little bit about what my adventures are all about. You know, you're putting in yourself in these difficult self-imposed arbitrary situations so that you can play the chess game long enough so that you get the pearl. Mm. And, and that's good enough, you know, mm. uh, that's good enough as far as I'm concerned. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> I could be just making this up. <laughs> oh, well, we're all making everything up. That's how, <laughs> that's how it works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, no. And I, 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 I think you, you're dead right that it's not about um, 
what you've done, but it's about the way you've um, the way you've lived life and the way you've um, found satisfaction or Totally. And, and I will say if there is like, a, yeah. And I will say if there is like a fundamental overarching thing, you know, it might, and I'm biased, but it's this idea of being out in the wilderness in some capacity and whether mm-hmm. that's at the North pole or your backyard and being able to kind of be in that space in a way that is fulfilling for you, that is connecting to you. I, I think that's kind of, that's the big kind of push that helps people as individuals. I mean, it's not the right way to say it, but I, I do think that's kind of a, I would say, you know, I'm, I usually understand the nuance and situations, but I would say that that's a little bit more like, okay, that's, that's what we need in some mm. capacity. It doesn't have to be hiking the Appalachian trail, but if, if you can be outside in, in whatever capacity and you, you're going to, you're going to get the pearls for yourself. And if you keep doing it in whatever way, they'll be there. It's not going to club you over the head, but um, the lessons are there. And, uh, you know, I think that's, that's, that's why wilderness travel is, I think one of the, is a great gift. Hmm. Yeah, for sure. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more actually. Um, cool. whether that's, whether that's, uh, yeah, <laughs> whether that's looking over your shoulder for polar bears or, uh, looking underneath your surfboard, waiting for the slight ominous potential of a great white shark. Seriously. Yeah. The shark seems much more scary to me, but that's just me. <laughs> it's such a common, it's such a, you know, it's scary in a different way because the chances of it actually being there looking for you are so phenomenally small, but because you can't, because it's like that thing of like lurking in the deep, there's something sort of, um, deeply sort of subconscious. That and Jaws, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, Eric. Well, is there anything else that you would like to touch on or add or discuss? No, I, I just, you know, like it sounds cheesy, but I'm, I feel I've been around in the outdoor industry doing a, doing a bunch of things for, a, for a way too long time. And, um, you know, I still get a lot of joy in, in outdoors and as an individual, I'm, I'm, I feel very lucky to have these conversations like this and, and be associated with some incredible companies, um, as well. And, and so there's, there's not a second that goes by that any of this is ever lost on me. And, and so I'm very appreciative and, and, and thank you for the time and the interest. Well, yeah, likewise, it's, um, something that I've, it's, it's not something that I anticipated when I started working for soul that I'd be getting to have, uh, inspiring and kind of moving conversations with awesome people um, doing awesome things. So likewise, I appreciate your time and um, yeah, keep on doing you. And uh, <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, stay well, stay healthy. Will do. Thank you so much. Thanks, Eric. <laughs>